You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good evening, Valleydale. Welcome to our midweek service. Thank you for joining us tonight. We're going to look at a very interesting and challenging message in God's Word tonight. So I hope you'll stay tuned. Ken Ballou was a 10th generation native of New Orleans. He obviously cared very deeply about his hometown. He grew up there, then went off to college at LSU and Baton Rouge. Ken got into cycling and began competing. In 2005, he was in South America competing at a race there, and he got ready to come home, went to the airport, and he noticed something on the television. There was a hurricane heading right toward his hometown of New Orleans. So Ken flew back and drove back into town as soon as he could. And by the time he had gotten there, the levees had been broken for a couple of days. Water was everywhere. He was naturally concerned about his mom, about his home, his cat. And as he began driving around town, he noticed that people were hurting everywhere. Elderly, the sick, stray pets were all over the place. So people looked confused. And so he decided, hey, I need to do something to help these people. So he got his car and he began trying to rescue people. He took a couple with diabetes, took them to the downtown convention center where there were hundreds of other people as well. And he, he, he backed up from there and he made a decision. He said, I'm going to do everything I can to rescue people. So because the city, of so much of it was underwater, he got a small boat, kind of like a canoe or a kayak, and he knew the landscape so well because he'd grown up there. So he began going around and just rescuing people. There was a couple, he rescued them, their house was on fire, and they were stranded on the porch, so he rescued them, and he would take them to safety, and oftentimes people would ask him, hey, where are we going? And he would say, a better place, and so he kept doing this. Well, his girlfriend, Candy, got involved. She was uh, in another state at the time, and she would use this news website where people could could, uh, go on there, and they could list their address for him to go by and check on their, their, a pet or a family member. And so she would email Ken these addresses. And then Ken, the next day, would spend the day going home to home, checking on people. Well, eventually, Ken got a 24-foot boat. And he would go around, and he was rescuing people, dozens, 10 or 12 people at a time. And on one occasion, Ken went by an elderly woman's house, and he tried to rescue her, but she refused. And... Ken went by sometime later, and tragically, she had passed away. And so days, so after several days of this, Ken became a little discouraged. He was tired, and he just said, you know what? I, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's time for me to quit. Have you ever known of someone who needed rescue, but they refused to receive it? Sure, it happens all the time. Spiritually speaking, people refuse to receive Christ all the time, probably daily. There's people who hear the gospel, but they refuse to receive Christ. Maybe you were one of those persons who you heard the gospel a number of times, your heart was hard, but thankfully there was someone who kept sharing with you and people kept praying for you, and at some point you came to Christ. Or maybe some of you were like Ken. You, man, you could look back years ago and think, man, I was on fire for Christ. I wanted to rescue as many people as possible But somewhere along the way, you just like Ken did, you got discouraged and maybe you grew weary and you got focused elsewhere and and you just haven't had a desire to see people saved or haven't been engaged in it in a long time. 
Tonight we're going to talk about rescue. And we're going to look how God rescued a city that was under siege by the Syrians. There was a famine. There were people starving. And they needed rescue. And God rescued them through the prophecy of the prophet Elisha. And so I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 7. And we're going to talk about rescue. 2 Kings chapter 7. Let me give you just a little bit of context here. In this story, it actually begins at the end of chapter 6. You remember last week, we, our story ended with peace between Israel and Syria. The king of Israel had let uh, the great army of Syria go. They had given them a great feast. And they went home and there was peace. Well, about a year later, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, said in chapter 6 that he mustered up his, his entire army and he sent them down to siege the city of Samaria. Now, a siege was designed to, uh, they would camp out around the city and they would prevent things coming in and out of the, of the city under siege. And the goal was to starve the victims and so to prevent them from engaging in a war. And so at some point, the, the, the people in the city would just have to surrender. They would have no strength, they would have no money, and they would have to just say, okay, fine, we surrender. And so the Syrians went down to siege Samaria. And this would have happened in probably 845 to 841 B.C. And the situation was very tragic and was very desperate. As you read here, there was a great famine. The famine was not economically. It was because of the military siege from the Syrians. And it says that things were so bad that the head of a donkey sold for 80 shekels. Now, one shekel equaled one month's wage. So can you imagine paying 80 months of salary for a donkey's head. But that's how tragic and that's how desperate the situation was. People were starving. And it even got worse. There was cannibalism. You see in verse 29 of chapter 6 where a mother had, had eaten her own son. Times were hard there in Samaria. And so the king of Israel is out walking one day and he hears these two women talking and he learns about what is happening. And he's, he's upset and he tears his robe and he says, you know, what, what is going on here? And uh, he blames Elisha. And um, he's, he, he, perhaps he thinks, well, maybe the Syrians still want to get Elisha. They, they came after him before, or they, they kept sending people down to ambush us. And, uh, you know, maybe because he was giving them intelligence, they wanted to come after Elisha. So the king of Israel blamed Elisha. So he said he sends a messenger to take the, off the head of Elisha. Now, Elisha is there in Samaria in his house, it says, at the end of chapter 6. He's there with the elders of the city, and he knows what's about to happen. He knows the king has sent someone to him. So that's just a little bit about the context. It's a desperate situation. And in the midst of that desperate situation, God had a word through the prophet Elisha. It was a word of hope. It was a word of encouragement. God was about to change this situation around in 24 hours. Just like that, God would change it. So look at chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Oh, isn't that amazing? Hear the word of the Lord. Just hear the word of God in the midst of desperation, in the midst of turmoil. Here comes a fresh word from Almighty God. And the word was, tomorrow about this time. So about 24 hours from now, Elisha says, a sea of fine flour, a sea was about seven quarts, 
About seven quarts of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. So one month's wage. You'll have enough. A, a, a sea of fine flour is enough to feed a single adult for about a week. So instead of paying 80 shekels for a, the head of a donkey, you could pay two shekels for uh, enough flour that would, that would feed you for about a week. Or uh, pay one shekel for two seahs uh, of flour. And then uh, barley would be sold as well. So there would be legitimate and desirable food. In 24 hours, things would change. Just like that. Here comes a word of God into this situation. Now, that, that was an incredible word, but not everyone believed it. Look there at verse 2. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, I mean, you know, if he could, if he just opened windows, could this thing happen? And you just hear the, the cynicism and the unbelief in this captain. This captain represented Israel as a whole. They had refused to worship God. They refused to trust him. They refused to believe in him. And so when Elisha speaks forth a prophecy, he doesn't receive it. He says, you know, even if God could open up a window and just pour out food, there's no way this would happen. Not in the midst of this famine. There's no way crops can grow in 24 hours and harvest in such a short amount of time. Unbelief, hard-heartedness. That's where Israel was. That's where this captain was. And because of that, Elisha spoke a word of judgment on him because refusal to believe Elisha's word was refusal to trust in God because he was God's prophet. He said, if the Lord, or he said, but he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. In other words, you will see it. You will be aware of it. You will not participate in it because you have not trusted in God. You have not believed it. It was a prophecy of judgment upon him. We're going to see it come to pass later in this passage. Now, the story changes here in verse 3. It says, now there were four men, we don't know their names, who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. Now, because they were lepers, Leviticus 13 says, they had to stay on the outskirts of the city. So that's why they're outside there at the gate. Now, the gate was where the marketplace was. It was where the local uh, court system met, the local court of justice. Now, the rabbinical tradition says that these four men were the sons of Gehazi. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it is interesting. Remember, Gehazi was the servant of Elisha. And because of his heart of greed and because of his lies, he uh, attained leprosy. And rabbinic tradition says these were his four sons on the outskirts of the city. And here they are. And now we're, 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 we get invited into a conversation that they're having. They asked a question. Why are we sitting here until we die? In other words, why are we just going to sit here until we just waste away and we die? So they reasoned. They said, well, if we go into the city, then we're going to starve to death. But there's a famine. If we go to the camp of the Syrians, because they've set up a siege around the city, if we go there, we'll probably die as well. So, you know, what, what, let's just take a chance. We don't have anything to lose. We're probably going to die either way. And so they decided that they're going to get up and go to the camp of the Syrians. So they, arrived, they arose at twilight just as it was getting dark so that no one would see them. They could slip away from the, the gate and, and, and no one would notice. 
They would be quiet. And I would imagine they walked as quietly as they could. But probably their hearts were racing. And they go to the edge of the Syrian camp. Now, verse 6 says that while for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel, he's hired the Hittites. He's hired the Egyptians, and they're coming after us. So they were terrified, thinking they were outnumbered. Now, the Hittites lived north of Syria. There had already been a history of confrontation between the two. So they thought, oh, well, this is great. He's hired them. He's hired the Egyptians in the south. And here they come, and they're coming after us. Now, remember in 2 Kings 3, the Lord used the sense of sight to, uh, to give Israel victory. Remember the Moabites, they looked down, they thought they saw blood. They said, oh, they're fighting against each other. Let's go in and get the plunder. And then Israel defeated them. They walked into a trap. And here, God uses the sense of sound. He used sight, now he uses sound. They, feel, they think they hear something. Okay, so th- there's people coming after us, so we better get out of here. And so the Syri- all the Syrian soldiers, they flee. They leave their camp. They leave their horses. They leave their tents. They leave their food. They leave their money. They leave everything. And they just leave, just like that. Now, I don't know why, they, why would they not take their horses. It would have been quicker probably to, to travel that way, but... Perhaps they were just so terrified, they didn't stop to think about it. They just left. That's all they could do. And so these four lepers, now they walk into a gold mine. They walk into a camp that's been completely deserted. There's food everywhere. There's tents, there's gold, there's silver, there's clothing. And here they are, and no one is, is even there. And so they go into the camp. It's been a famine. They're hungry. And they go into the tent. It says they took these items and they hid them, surely, where no one else would find them. Then they go back, they go into another tent, and it said they carried items off again. So two different times, they're, they're going through these tents. There's just abundance. There's rejoicing. It, this is an incredible time for these four men. And I, maybe they sat there and they just said, boys, it just doesn't get any better than this. They were living it up. These, these were the great... The great, the great moments, a great moment in their life. But perhaps as they sat there, maybe they smiled at each other. Maybe one of them just kind of looked over at the city and, and they, got under, they fell under conviction. And their conscience bothered them. The elation of the moment began to fade away and they began to sense that they had responsibility. You see, the plunder in the Syrian camp was not just theirs alone. It was theirs to share with somebody else. Perhaps they looked over at the city of Samaria and just thought of all the hungry people. There was cannibalism. There was uh, donkeys' heads being sold for an outrageous amount of money. People were desperate. People were hurting. And here they are living it up, and they had abundance. And over here, there was, there was people hurting. And, and they grew under conviction. And they realized, they said, what we're doing is not right Verse 9, then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This is not right. They were okay to enter the camp. What was wrong was their silence. It was not right for them to remain quiet and enjoy this all by themselves while everyone else struggled, where every people were dying, people were hungry. They were not doing right. They said, this is a day of good news. 
If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. The term for good news is widely used for times or messages of joy, messages of victory when God would deliver his people. And God had delivered his people here, except it only applied to four people right now because no one else knew about it. No one else knew the good news. And so they had a message of victory for their fellow Israelites, their fellow Samaritan residents, but they had not shared it yet. So their problem was silence. They were, they were not wrong to go there. They were wrong to keep it, the news, to themselves. Now, the term for silence means to exhibit silence or to be inactive. They were being inactive. They, they weren't sharing the good news yet. And they, they, they knew that this would bring punishment. Notice the immediacy of the punishment. They talked about in the morning. In other words, when the sun comes up, people are going to realize the Syrians aren't even here. And they're going to they're see us sitting here and think, why didn't they tell us? Why, why, why wouldn't they share the good news of all this food and supplies with people who have been starving for days? The term for punishment primarily means iniquity. Then it means guilt that stems from iniquity, which would lead to punishment. So there's guilt. There's this sense of I've done something wrong. And this fear of punishment is coming because I've done wrong. The men resolved to do something about it. They resolved to tell the good news. They would go and tell the king's household. So I've got three points to share with you tonight, then some application at the end. Here's our first point. Rescue requires telling. Rescue requires telling. In order for the Israelites to experience the good news, to experience the benefits of this camp, these four lepers had to share the good news with them. They were the only ones who knew about it, the only ones who could share the good news. The church today is like these four lepers. We have the good news, and it's our responsibility to tell others. There's a whole world out there that's hurting as well, and it's our responsibility to share it, not just to celebrate that we have it, not just to keep it to ourselves, but to share it. That is our responsibility. That's what Jesus said, make disciples. Discipleship includes evangelism. Now, for them, they feared punishment. We don't have to fear punishment, but we will lose rewards. If we're not faithful in doing what we're supposed to do, we, we can forfeit rewards. There's no punishment for us in Christ Jesus, but we can lose rewards. At the end of Paul's life, he looked forward to the crown of righteousness, he said, that was reserved for him by the Lord Jesus Christ because he had faithfully served Jesus. And so we can look forward to rewards as well if we will faithfully serve him. And on the day where we're at the judgment seat of Christ and our lives are evaluated for what we've done for the Lord, that's when we'll be rewarded based on our works because of our faith in Christ. And so these were desperate times and Samaria needed good news. In 1941, the Japanese military captured the island of Guam and in the Western Pacific. They occupied it for three years until 1944 when the U.S. came in and retook it. The Japanese forces retreated except for one soldier named Shoichai Yokoi. Shoichai, instead of surrendering, Shoichai went into hiding, and he lived in the jungles of Guam. He made survival tools, and he lived just by himself in isolation in the jungle day by day. And he waited on the Japanese army to come back to him and give him orders. He waited. 
and he waited. Almost 30 years went by. In 1972, Shoi Choi was discovered, and he had no idea that World War II was over. Can you imagine that? Almost 30 years, this guy lived in a jungle in isolation, in hiding, thinking that World War II was still going on. And no one had ever told him. No one told him the good news. Can you imagine just losing almost 30 years of your life, not being able to see his family, his friends, all because no one would tell him the good news, that the war was over and that he could go home. People around us need to know the good news as well. The war's, the war's over. The war's been fought and Jesus has won. Jesus is risen from the dead. And so the, the debt's been paid. And it's our job to tell the good news. But if people don't know, they don't know they need to do anything with it. They don't know they need to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so they just keep living in the midst of the turmoil and the chaos. Our next point comes in verses 10 through 16. The lepers could not enter the city because they were lepers. So they went to the gatekeeper and they shared the good news with the gatekeeper. And word begins to travel now. And the, the, gate, the guards, they surely they must have known these lepers since the lepers stayed outside the city. And word now gets to the uh, palace where the king was, the king's house. The king was apparently asleep, but when he was awakened, he was told the news, and he didn't believe it at first. He thought this was trickery. If you remember years ago, when Joshua went into the promised land with Israel, they went to Ai, and they pulled Ai. They retreated from Ai and pulled them out of the city and then another group of Israelites ambushed the city and set it on fire. So that the, the other group turned around and saw their city on fire. And so perhaps the king of Israel was thinking about that. And he said, well, I'm not going to be tricked into, believe, into thinking the Syrians have gone. So he's, he, he doesn't believe it here. So one of his servants said, why don't you just send some people to go check it out? Go explore it. See if what they're saying is true. And so the king decided to send two horsemen out to, to see if the Syrians had really left the camp. Uh, it was a, a small risk. If they lost a couple of people, it wouldn't be the end of the world. And so he sent out two horsemen, and they go, and they, they, they chase. They follow this path of the Syrian army for 25 miles to the Jordan River, and they are finding all kinds of things on the path along the way. They're throwing garments and equipment, and, and they come back and report to the king, it's true. They're nowhere to be found. They're not in the camp. They're miles and miles away. So it's true. So the joy of the four lepers now has now spread to the whole city of Samaria. And it says they went in and they plundered the camp. There was joy. Uh, verse 16, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. Can you imagine the excitement, just the you know, the, the joy on their faces thinking, man, I'm finally going to have a meal. I'm so hungry. And everything was changing now. Our second point tonight is that rescue requires hearing and believing. Rescue requires hearing and believing. The four lepers did their part to tell the gatekeepers. But the gatekeepers, they had to hear, and then they had to believe, and they had to pass on the word. So they did that, and they went to the king. Now, the king could have shut this whole thing down and said, no, we're, I'm, just, I'm going to refuse to believe it. 
But the king had to hear, and eventually he did believe it. And so people were released, and they were able to enjoy the plunder of the camp. But everyone had a responsibility. It sounds a lot like Romans 10, doesn't it? Remember Romans 10? People cannot hear of Jesus or cannot believe in Jesus unless they hear of Jesus. They cannot hear Jesus unless someone preaches to them. No one can preach to them unless that person is sent. You see, there's numerous people involved here and all have a, a crucial responsibility. See, rescue requires hearing and believing. Are you playing your part? Are you playing your part? Are you sharing? Maybe if, if you can't share, maybe, maybe are you sending? Are you involved? Are you praying? Are you involved in the rescue effort? You have a crucial role to play, whatever that is. Not everyone can go to another country and share. Some of you have physical limitations. You may not even be able to go across the street, but you can pray. Maybe you can financially support someone else. You can be a part of the rescue process. At the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, there was one sport race that was just phenomenal. It was the men's uh, four by 100 meter freestyle relay swimming competition. It was unbelievable. This was the race where Michael Phelps had already won seven gold medals. And so he had tied Mark Spitz, who also won seven back in 1972. And so there was speculation, is Michael going to win his eighth gold medal? You know, he could, he could do it here at this race. And the problem was they were going into the race. The Americans were not the favorite. The French were the favorite. And, and the, the French, one of, his, one of the French uh, guys had been talking some trash. He said they were going to smash the Americans. And so there was tension. But what's interesting, Michael Phelps was not the hero of this race. Another American named Jason Lezak was a hero of this race. You see, Michael Phelps started off, and, and of course he did what Michael does. He, he got, all, got us off to a great start, uh, had a great time. But by the, the last leg, which was Jason was our last uh, swimmer, the French had a lead. And the last French competitor was a, was a man named Elaine Bernard. Now, Elaine Bernard is six foot, six foot five inches tall and is a 100-meter freestyle world record holder. So it did not look good for the American team. We're already behind, and here comes the, the French world record holder, and he's going to swim the last two laps. So off they go. But over the next 46.06 seconds, we saw a miracle take place. 32-year-old Jason Lezak jumped into the pool and did the impossible. After his first you know, swim to the other side, he was still behind. And then, but as he turned around and started coming back, he said later he had more, he never sensed that much adrenaline. And he just came on strong and ended up winning and beat the Frenchman who said they were going to smash the Americans. And so in the end, it was Lezak instead of Phelps who put on the show for the Americans. And Lezak's anchor leg was the fastest time ever. You see, every American swimmer had their part to play. And Michael Phelps would not have won another, another eighth gold medal without Jason Lezak. See, all of us have a role to play in the rescue effort. The question is, are you playing your part? Are you active in playing your part? Well, things changed here in Samaria, and you would think that this was great news for everybody. And it was for most people, but not for one particular person. 
Our final main point is found in verses 17 through 20. Remember the cynical captain? Remember him? If God, if there were windows in heaven, could, could this thing happen? Remember him? Well, we're, we're now we're reminded of, 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 of that prophecy. Now the king, verse 17, had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. In the sovereignty of God, the, this cynical captain now had charge of the gate, the main gate where people were going to storm out of there and go plunder the Syrian camp. So perhaps they rushed out of there just out of starvation, out of excitement, and they, they, they just trampled on this cynical captain, and he died. This was a judgment on him because of his unbelief, because of his hard-heartedness. And verse 20 says, and so it happened to him. And so that judgment was fulfilled is what it means. For the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Our final point, main point tonight is this. Rescue can be missed through unbelief. Rescue can be missed through unbelief. The captain had unbelief and its skepticism in his heart, and he missed out on God's blessing. And it was a picture of, of, of idolatrous Israel who would miss out on salvation because they didn't trust in God. They too would end up just like this, this cynical captain. They would miss out on salvation and God's blessing and abundance because they refuse to trust in God. And there's so many people like that in the world today. They just refuse to receive Christ. They're going to do it their own way. They're going to do it by their own works, their own effort, their own name, their own whatever. And they miss out on the, the, the free gift of salvation in Christ. They miss it. And then when they one day appear before Jesus, he will not be their savior. He will be their judge. And it will be a sad, sad moment. Don't miss your rescue attempt. Don't miss it. Some of you, maybe you've, you've heard of Christ for years and you put it off. And you said, I'll just, yeah, I want to live my life for a while. And at some point when I, you know, when, later in life, I'll receive Christ. You, you don't know that. You don't know that you'll have that opportunity. Your heart may become so hard. You may not live till then. So you need to receive him now before it's too late. See, this captain missed it. He saw it, but he missed it. You imagine the tragedy of seeing how things could change and seeing abundance and not being able to participate in it because of unbelief. I want to give you four application points based on our message tonight. First, be assured that God can instantaneously change your situation. He can instantaneously change your situation. 24 hours. God intervened here and changed it just like that. Remember Paul or Saul at the time on the Damascus Road had an encounter with the Lord Jesus. His life was changed. They say, you know, he's praying and he's testifying about Jesus Christ. Remember Acts 3, Peter and John going up to the temple. They see a man lame from birth. His whole life, this guy's been lame. They look at him. Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I command you to get up. He gets up. His, his legs and ankles were strengthened, and he got up. Just like that, instantaneously, God intervened and changed his situation. God can intervene and change your situation. It may be time sensitive. That's not a problem for God. God doesn't need a long runway to intervene in your situation. All he needs is you to cry out to him and open your heart to him, and he can change that situation, and he'll change you in a heartbeat. Second, be assured that cynicism will cause you to miss God's best. 
Cynicism will cause you to miss God's best. Even Christians can struggle with cynicism. All of us are are vulnerable. We're susceptible to it. Cynicism involves a lack of hope, and it leads to a negative attitude that questions everything. In his book entitled, Didn't See It Coming, Kerry Newhoff wrote about his own struggle with cynicism. He said that cynicism starts because you poured your heart into something and got little in return. Or maybe you got something in return, but it was the opposite of what you desired. You fell in love only to have that relationship dissolve. You threw your heart into your job only to be told you were being let go. You were completely there for your mom only to have her tell you you're such a disappointment. And because of your hurt, you've closed your heart out of this self-protective mechanism. You're suspicious, you're questioning other people all the time. Newhoff continued, when I was at my most cynical, the thing that died within me was hope. Hope that the future would be better than the past. Hope that the next time could be different. Hope that my heart could feel again. Maybe some of you are there tonight. You say, but I didn't realize I've become cynical. I, I, you know, I'm so discouraged by everything happening in the world and, and that's where you find yourself. But, but God can change that. God can intervene and he can free you from that cynicism. If that's where you are, focus on the resurrection of Jesus. See, Jesus is coming back. He will rescue us. He's coming back again. Third, be assured that when we act in faith, God will act in power. When we act in faith, God will act in power. Second Chronicles 16, 9, the first part, says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless. Do you know when the Syrians left their camp? Verse 7 says they fled away in the twilight. Do you know when the lepers got up to go to the camp? Verse 5 says they arose at twilight. The moment they stepped out, God stepped in. They stepped out and God stepped in and intervened. And the Syrians left just like that. When we step out in faith, God will step in and he will intervene. Fourth, be assured that our rescue is a story to tell, not a secret to suppress. Our rescue is a story to tell. It's not a secret to suppress. The key verse in this whole story is verse six. It says, for the Lord had made, the Lord made the Syrians hear this sound and they were afraid and they left. God intervened. So they had a story, they had a rescue story and they went told the good news. My friend, when God saves you, it's a story to tell. It's not a secret to suppress. The first part of Psalm 107 verse two says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That means tell it. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell the story of their salvation. That's the good news. Well, Ken Ballou was ready to quit his rescue efforts in New Orleans. Seven days into this thing, he, he, he had 10 people on his boat. He took them to safety and he told a guy there, he said, I, this is my last trip. He wasn't gonna do anymore. He's tired, he's frustrated. People were questioning him. Some people were taking him, taking him up on his rescue efforts. But then an elderly woman gripped his arm. She gripped him. She said, you can't leave. This, this is your town. This is your, this is your place. There's more people out there. Who, who else is going to do it? He got his attention. And he changed his mind. He said, okay, 
And so he decided to keep rescuing people. So he kept going out on that boat. He kept directing rescue efforts. The National Guard partnered with him. They began rescuing just dozens of people day after day after day. Finally, the water receded there in New Orleans. When it was all said and done, Ken Ballou had rescued about 400 people. Unbelievable. Ken battled discouragement. He battled the summer heat. I'm sure he battled fatigue. I'm sure he battled ridicule. In spite of all of that, he rescued people because he loved his city and he cared about the people in it. And so he set out to rescue people. Do you care about lost people? There are people who need rescuing, but they have to hear the good news. And we have the joy and the responsibility to tell them. Who else out there is going to do it? Father, I thank you for the word of God. And I pray it would minister to souls tonight. Lord, I pray for the the unbeliever who may be like the captain tonight, who has been cynical and unbelieving and refusing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. But I pray today would be the day of salvation for that person. Father, I pray for the Christian who has known you for a long time, but maybe got to a point of discouragement like Ken did and has just not been involved in rescuing people through the gospel. I pray they would re-engage. I pray they would surrender to you, give their life to, uh, and surrender the rest of their life to Jesus, to the Lordship of Christ. Father, I pray you give us a heart for lost people. Help us to see them as you see them. Help us to spend the rest of our lives rescuing people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's not our job to convert them. It's our job to to share the gospel with them. So would you give us a burden for the lost? Thank you for this message and this scripture. Would you apply it to our hearts so that we would be changed? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, thank you for joining us tonight. And I hope you'll join us again this Sunday. Pastor will be in Job 42. You'll want to be here. We look forward to seeing you then. God bless. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.